0: Amen. Please be seated. So you're going to hear a really short uh, Bible reading now that tells us of a story of of a a man named Levi who came to meet Jesus for the first time. So can we have the reading on the screen? So it's taken from Mark chapter 2 and verses 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." I remember very clearly, very, very clearly indeed, the life-defining experience of receiving my GCSE results. Now, I know it's an experience that many young people, some of our young people, have been going through uh, this week. I remember very, very clearly collecting the envelope that contained the results. I I don't know if it's more high-tech these days, but I remember collecting an envelope with the results I remember taking that envelope back to a friend's house and sort of waiting. I knew I didn't want to rip them open in front of all my friends, but then once I'd got back to my friend's house, sort of nervously holding the envelope, waiting to see what was inside, uh, and then stealing myself finally to open the envelope and see the results. I put so much effort and so much preparation into those exams. I remember equally clearly uh, my revision timetable, the endless notes that I made, the little index cards that I organized very carefully, uh, the practice papers. To be honest, I was probably more prepared for my GCSEs than for any other test or exam that I have taken in my life since. It's kind of gone off, dropped off on a graph uh, since. Um, and then there comes the sharing of the results now at, th- at this point I feel very ancient and I need to explain this was the days before Facebook or text messages So you had to wait to actually see people in order to tell them so this, this kind of uh, prolonged the agony uh, I remember uh, Phoning my parents from my friend's house to tell them the results and then in the coming days uh, meeting my friends and sharing the news Um, Like many young people um, receiving their results this week, I needed good grades to get my place at college. But in a way, my GCSE results did more than that. In that moment, thankfully they were good results, but in that moment, I felt that they defined me, all that I was and all that I achieved. I was the person that had these results, Perhaps not a very healthy view, but a common experience, I think, for many. This feeling when you you read a set of results, and in that moment, that's who you are. When we think about the subject, you matter, which is where we've got to in our sermon series this morning, I think we come quite quickly to the question, who are you? Who are you? There was certainly a period in my life as I began college and again when I started university that I found most introductions started with the swapping of subjects and grades. Who are you? What do you do? What did you get? Where are you from? Um, Certainly at university, the, the, the subject that you were studying together with your hometown seemed to pretty much form the answer to the question, who are you? But it's really unsatisfactory, isn't it? Because I hope that we know that we're so much more than a list of our qualifications. Grown-ups, and I use the term loosely, tend to be more interested in what do you do? Have you noticed that when you meet people at professional events uh, and often social situations, which I find quite painful, to be honest, with new people, the standard question, instead of saying, who are you, people tend to say, what do you do? I find at moments like this I'm quite jealous of John, actually, because fireman is the ultimate party answer to the question, what do you do? And it always gets amazing responses. People assume he's terribly heroic um, and that he's got lots of stories to tell them. And, and it's, it goes really, really well, generally. And then, of course, if, if I've gone second, then I struggle to explain, really, with, with any, anything near as much enthusiasm, what it is that I do. Um, sometimes I'm not even really sure what label to put on what I do. But it's still not enough, is it? Because the answer to who we are is so much more than our employment or our professional status. Sometimes it's our health that becomes the defining issue. I remember very clearly, um, some of you know I have problems with my hearing and... And when they were going through the early diagnostics, they put me through a big MRI scanner, very exciting, and I went to get the results. And they said, oh, we've got good news. You don't have a brain tumour. <laughs> and I, nobody at this point had told me this was a possibility. So it was quite, quite an odd thing to be confronted with. And I remember feeling quite unsettled and spending several days feeling like I was the person that didn't have a brain tumour. And that kind of, for a moment, defined me. And for many of us, um, as our health becomes an issue, we, we kind of feel a bit like we've been reduced to a set of appointments or test results or a diagnosis. For others, it might be our relationships or our income or where we live. But none of these things give us a satisfactory answer, really, to the big who are you question. I did it in a bit of a jokey way with the Mr Man characters earlier. But who are you? It seems very easy in the land of the Mr. Men, doesn't it? They have a nice label and their personality and everything matches very neatly. It's not quite so simple for us. I've noticed that the search for identity is a powerful driving uh, force in our society. There seems to be a constant striving for a place in the world, a desperate sense of trying to acquire the trappings of success or attempting to establish a reputation Social media is terrible for this. It really capitalises on our apparently unsatiable desire for approval, to be seen, to be noticed, to be liked. I have to say this predominantly seems to be the narrative of the younger generation. Um, Seem to be particularly hungry for this. And I want to wave a book at you. I've been reading a book, highly recommend it. Um, It's called The Dark Night of the Shed. Uh, The subtitle is "Men, Spirituality, the Midlife Crisis, and Sheds." Okay, now it it may come to your attention that I am neither male and and not quite ready for a midlife crisis. So let's just say I'm reading it for a friend, shall we? Um, um, But it's really interesting, really, really interesting book, and it kind of addresses this idea of identity. Um, The author is a guy called Nick Page. And I've been really struck reading this book by what he says is at the root of a typical uh, midlife crisis. And he says it begins to dawn on us somewhere around the middle of our lives that we might not be able to acquire or achieve everything we'd set our hearts on. So the first half of our life we have this vision of what's in store and we're busy we're working, we're acquiring, we're achieving, and there's a dream and there's a vision of all that's going to be. And at some point, it hits us. Maybe it ain't quite going to turn out like that. And he puts this sort of peak, or this realising that all your dreams maybe aren't quite going to be fulfilled in the way that you planned. He also described something else that really struck me and was the inspiration really behind the Mr. Men thing earlier with the Mr. Nobody He says, when you're younger, people notice you. When you're younger, you can be somebody, you can apply for things, you can do stuff. But as you get older, it starts to feel like you're becoming a little bit invisible, a little bit overlooked. And he, uh, talking about men in their midlife, he says that teenage children are particularly to blame for this phenomenon. If any of you have had children, they say, being a father to a small child is desperately rewarding because you're their hero. They love you. They can't wait for you to get home from work. They rush up to you. They draw you pictures. And then you're kind of confronted with the reality of a teenage child. And suddenly it is as if you are so out of date and so irrelevant. And that's even if they bother to notice you. Because actually most of the time you just feel invisible. And so I stole the Mr Nobody thing from him. Because that made me think of that. And increasingly, we start to feel this. We feel overlooked at work, passed by, by mainstream advertising culture, uh, generally ignored by our teenage children. I I have that pleasure yet to come. I'm looking forward to it. Um, It feels like we maybe have failed to make the mark on the world that we'd planned I would suggest that maybe this feeling isn't just confined to middle-aged men having a midlife crisis. It's certainly um, something I was very interested in when, as I was reading it. And I think it's a deep cry, actually, of the need of our heart to know that we matter. I think right in the very core of us is sense that we want to be noticed, we want to be known, we want to be valued... And yet we find it so hard to find satisfactory answers or explanations to fill that need. And so we come to the story of Levi. I'm not really sure how old Levi was, but humor me, because I think he might fit our midlife crisis model. He certainly was a man who was working hard and who had become defined by his job. Now, being a tax collector was a great job if you wanted security, if you wanted wealth, if you wanted a position within the authority structure of society. However, it wasn't such a good job if you wanted a good reputation um, uh, with society in general. And specifically, uh, it wasn't a good job if you wanted a good reputation with the Jewish people in particular. So we know that generally tax collectors were Jews, who were working for the Roman Empire. So there's this extra sense that they were being seen as traitors or conspirators with an enemy. It was also accepted that tax collectors skimmed off a healthy personal bonus from whatever they took. So again, this made them unpopular and it also made them wealthy. And in a funny sort of way, I think we can see that the wealth that they amassed and displayed only added to this sense of alienation. So I wonder whether Levi had started to question whether this was all his life was going to amount to. I wonder if he'd started to feel confused that although he had all the wealth he'd dreamed of, maybe a nice house, he still felt dissatisfied. Perhaps the approval of the state authorities didn't really satisfy the longing that he had deep within to be known and well regarded. Maybe he felt that he had a job, but not a purpose. The Bible is full of very similar stories. Another one that I've been thinking about recently is Jacob. Really interesting parallels uh, to the story of Levi in Genesis 32. You can read it. So Jacob has managed to trick his brother out of the birthright. So he's very kind of grabbing and ambitious from an early age. And on the face of it, things are going really, really well for him. We meet him in uh, sort of halfway through Genesis, by which point he's got two wives, many children, cattle, donkeys, goats, and male and female servants. So kind of by the standard of the day, really, he had it all. The whole focus of his life was acquiring more things, acquiring more possessions. And then in Genesis 32, verse 22, we read the slightly odd and really interesting story of Jacob wrestling with God. And this encounter changes him because this man, who was constantly trying to acquire more and more to enhance his reputation, starts giving away his prized possessions after this encounter. He is reconciled to his brother, and he says, God has been gracious to me, and I have all that I need. Another change that comes upon Jacob when God meets him is he gets his name changed. His name is changed um, to Israel. God says, your name is Jacob you will no longer be called Jacob, your name will be Israel. So Nick Page, the the guy that wrote the book that I'm talking about, said this tells us much about how God deals with us. He says he remakes and he renames us. God exercises an intimate, creative and loving remaking and renaming that changes fundamentally who we are and reorients our lives towards him. So let's get back to Levi. The description of the meeting with Jesus is really, really brief, but so significant. Levi is sitting at the tax collector's booth. Perhaps the weight of expectation, dissatisfaction, disappointment and alienation are all heavy on his shoulders. Yet all of this is very well hidden under this veil of affluence and status. We read, as Jesus walked along, he saw Levi. He saw Levi. I think Jesus saw through Levi. Because when the gaze of Jesus falls on you, he sees you. You are known, utterly and completely. There is nothing that can be hidden from him. And isn't this the deepest desire of us all? To be known, to be understood, to have someone who just gets you without explanation or justification, Psalm 139, I'm sure you know it well, says, you created my innermost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. We are known by this Jesus. Jesus saw Levi and he knew him. In that moment, he understood. Jesus saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, and he knew him. He knew his family, he knew where he had come from. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, and he knew his backstory, he knew his history, he knew all the things he had done, the dreams he had held on to, the pain, the disappointment. Jesus saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax collector's booth. And he saw and he understood the professional expectation on Levi. He saw and understood the ambition and the conflicted loyalties. He saw the professional label and all the associations given to that label by society. How incredible, how mind-blowing is it that the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one whose hands flung stars into space, is concerned with us as individuals. With Jesus, we don't blur into the background. We don't get lost in a crowd. There is no hiding or pretending He sees us and he knows us. Jesus saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Jesus commands him to follow and Levi obeys. And having responded to that initial call, Levi takes Jesus to his house for a meal where they eat with many tax collectors and sinners. This is radical acceptance. There is no doubt that Levi is part of the in-crowd now. But the religious leaders are quite worried. Perhaps there's a mistake. Perhaps Jesus doesn't quite realise what he's doing or who he's mixing with. Jesus is clear though. There's no mistake. How could there be? Because he saw Levi and he knew him and he called him and he accepted him. Jesus is clear. He'd come for the sinners, for the tax collectors, For the disappointed, the pained, the afflicted, the overworked, the forgotten, the poor. He'd come for the lost and the least. And he'd seen them as individuals, and he called them by name, and he made them known, and he accepted them. Jesus looks past the expectations of society, of authorities and religious leaders, and he calls individuals by name. The truth is, you do matter. Not because of your qualifications, or your job title, or your relationship, or your employment status. You may have been overlooked, or ignored, or forgotten, but you matter. Because Jesus has seen you, he knows you, he calls you by name. You are no longer a nobody, you are definitely a somebody. For there is no higher calling, nothing more meaningful for your identity to become a friend of God. We are called to be friends of God, co inheritors with Christ of all the glory of the Father. Scripture tells us that Jesus endured the pain of the cross for the promise that was set before him. And that's you. The promise was a reconciliation of relationship with you. You matter because God created you, loved you, knows you and fought for you. You matter because God has a plan and a purpose for your life. You matter because you are Christ's promised inheritance. But the enemy loves to render the precious children of God ineffective. And one of his favourite tactics is to whisper lies to us. He plays on our insecurities and our fears and he makes us feel unworthless or unwelcome or useless or invisible. But don't let the enemy win. Don't let the enemy steal from you your power and your hope. Know the truth about who you are. You matter because Jesus has seen you and called you by name. You matter because Jesus has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit, by whom you can cry Abba Father, and by whom you can do all the same things that Jesus did. You matter because all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to you. You matter because you were part of God's plan to spread the good news and make more disciples. You matter because you are the means by which God can express his love to others who are lost, lonely, and struggling to work out who they are. So today, please don't feel ignored or overlooked, for Jesus is here, and he sees you, and he knows you, and he calls you by name. Amen.